Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. Our great guest today is Kate Davis, who until recently was Chief Executive of Notting Hill Genesis, one of the biggest social housing providers in Europe. This is a very informative and fun conversation about a really important topic about making our cities uh, in housing terms in, as inclusive as possible. Please listen, it's great. Hello to Kate Davis. I'm going to say, ¿Cómo está? Oh, muy, muy bien. Gracias. And the, um, the reason we're doing this is because Kate, I think, is still in Bar- Barcelona, where she's. she will tell us uh, uh, why she's there. But what I'm going to start with, Kate, apart from saying hello, is I'm going to start at the uh, what you were doing immediately before you went off to Barcelona, and I'm going to, because I think it's really important, you were a very big player in, my, in, in, uh, in the UK in social and affordable housing, and you've got a, a great story to tell. And I want to start at the end. I want to start at the, at the end with your organisation uh, in Notting, or the Notting Hill uh, community housing providers, we would say, in, in Australia. I want to say to you to tell everybody, because one of the things I think is a, a really interesting and somewhat idiosyncratic British tale is the way in which the community housing provider movement, the social housing movement, was kind of um, given a uh, new life back in the 80s, 90s, stock transfer, and, and became big organisations in the way we don't see quite so much of in, like in Australia, and I think many other places. But I wanted to talk about the organisation you ran at the end, you know, how many homes, what were you doing, and then we'll work backwards in the history. Should we start there? Yeah, so when I left at Christmas last year, uh, Notting Hill Genesis had 67,000 homes under management. Um, and given it had started in 1964 with uh, one house, you know, that's quite significant growth. Um, in that mix of 67,000, about 17 or 18,000 were pure social housing at the lowest possible rents for the people in the greatest need. But also there were about 5,000 homes for shared ownership. Um, a type of tenure that we invented in 1979 and became very popular with the middle market, the people who couldn't afford to buy outright, but no longer were able to access social housing. And within that also is some care and support for vulnerable people, older people and so on. Um, But also over the time I was there, we set up a huge market rent operation of 5,000 homes for pure market rent. Additionally, Notting Hill Genesis was building homes for outright sale in order to make profits to keep the whole machine going. So, so that's basically what it was when I left. So you were a, uh, were you a not-for-profit or a for-profit association? Absolutely not-for-profit, but, and strictly a charity, but obviously we were very interested in making profits. Yeah. And the profits, I think, in the last year or two were about £130 million of, uh, you know, after everything has been accounted for, of pure profit that we made. And that enabled us to produce lots of housing at very significantly reduced rents uh, to meet the needs of poorest people in London. Because London's one of the most expensive places in the world to live, as you know. And therefore, the, the key workers, the ordinary people of London really risk not being able to live there unless there's a significant supply of social housing. So that was our mission to provide social housing. And that, that's why we're a not-for-profit. But we made profits on the commercial activity to keep feeding uh-huh. that machine because government grants during the time I worked in social housing, which is over 30 years, government grants went down and down and down. Well, let's we'll, just, go, back to we'll go back to that later. because but even let's just savour the scale. Sometimes size is everything, as we know. And the uh, so this was like a really big uh, it was very important. It had multifaceted activities. It was uh, doing lots of work for uh, in all tiers that we are concerned of. And I would like to talk to you later on, actually, about the shared equity thing that you did, because uh, I hadn't realised, but it makes sense that where you are, you'd be amongst the first to actually you know, experiment with trying to get kind of low... I guess the way to think of it is lower-cost home ownership, uh, um, uh, and I think that's really important. So scale is is everything because some of the organisations that I would work with in Australia and they're doing great work and they're getting bigger and bigger all the time. 
but but they might struggle to get to ten thousand homes at this point in time, and and a lot of them would be a lot smaller. And and for the same reason in the UK, they started off as small, geographically kind of located, uh, charitable initiatives by often by often by um, well-meaning individuals actually, who, 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 you know, and scale came later. So let's just talk about the beginning of the journey. So the beginning of the journey for. Notting Hill, but let's let's position it because everybody will think they know Notting Hill because the film and and were you indeed founded in Notting Hill? Absolutely, and it's a fantastic part of London if if people don't know it other than the film because it was an area of great grandeur in the sort of uh, Georgian times and Victorian times, um, but gradually it, because it was a sort of inner city area, it fell into a different type of category eventually. So the large houses were divided and divided into really small units for people. Um, and they were let out a lot to immigrant people coming into London for jobs in the transport industry and so on. So it was an area that became associated with the Caribbean. People from the Caribbean knew that part of West London and would come there and, and live there, often in extremely overcrowded conditions and often in really small bed sits and so on, uh, and exploited by private landlords massively. Is, is that where um, the Rachman was? Is that is that absolutely the infamous the infamous <laughs> landlord a landlord the who was infamous? Yeah, ramp, yes, because once um, these properties had been crowded out with people, then during the nineteen sixties it became fashionable again for the middle classes who thought this was a great place to live. I mean, it is a beautiful yeah. part yeah. of the city. Um, so what he started to do was try to evict the, the poor families, the white families, the black families, the Irish families, um, and they had security of tenure at that time. So he had to use, um, you know, uh, illegal methods yeah. to drive them out of their homes. And that is what led to him enriching himself by uh, evicting the social te- or the, the poor tenants, uh, doing the property up and then selling them at a vast profit. So uh, where were where this one unit that historically Notting Hill had? Uh, where was it by the time we reach? Where was the organisation by the time we reach Rachman and the the whole? We're in the sort of Westbourne Grove area, the yeah. Notting Hill area, simply in that area. At that time, we were just one one housing association in Kensington and Chelsea, the borough that's now famous because of Grenfell, but clearly at the centre of London, west centre of West London. And the posh is the most expensive borough in, in London, yes. Let's do the history bit. Who founded you? Okay, so we're found by a radical vicar, as oh. many of the social yeah. housing associations were. Uh, so he was influenced by the sort of liberation theologists. He was quite left-wing, but he was also very devout. And ha- there was a movement in, in West London, and Shelter was also founded by the same guy, Reverend Bruce Kenrick. Was it him? And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 same guy. And he also uh, helped to found a Genesis, which used to be called Paddington Churches. Okay. So it was nice that we eventually came together in the last uh, five years. And this was in the, the late, late 50s, 50s late 50s, early 60s? Uh, the, the, no, the mid 60s. The mid 60s. And, yeah. and, and uh, how did they start? I mean, did they, did they get anybody to give them so a they house? Started, well, they started with a concern coming from their religious group uh, that something should be done about homelessness in their area poverty bad housing and homelessness and they started by collecting money in the local pubs they started by having jumble sales wow. and so on to raise some money initially and then they went to the auctions and they bid for homes that were had a, a sitting tenant now these were very depressed in price because the rent tax meant that the tenants were were secure so they could not put the rents up so these properties were going for 300 pounds or so small yeah. units in in divided houses so they went to the auctions with this money they collected and so on and they bought a few i think the first 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 year they had eight houses wow. eight flats with sitting tenants they started with the one new flat they they did that up they used voluntary labor when i was at school we supported shelter and we were encouraged to go on a minibus to go and help do this kind of stuff. Not I was in Manchester, but the same sort of uh, voluntary housing movement uh, was was important at the time. But just to be clear, they went from nothing to eight, and and to sixty seven thousand in you know in from the mid sixties to two thousand and twenty two. 
yeah that's yeah. An, but that is an astounding journey i mean i really think it is and i know you're at the heart of certainly the last 20 years of it so we want to talk about more probably but we want to talk about that so so you get into the what period do they start really expanding it really starts to expand in um well there's an intermediate period where the local government the uh uh Kensington and Chelsea Council started giving them some money, some grants, because they had some grants to improve housing. But this initially was all refurbishment, Tim. It's not new build at this yeah. stage, just refurbishment. Yeah. And they also borrowed money from the bank. The mo- at that time, the rents being charged were, were sufficient to repay a loan in part. So there were grants and loans. So it started in quite a sort of commercial way. Right. Then 1988, the government brought in the idea of really funding with private finance housing associations. And that's when it really started to take off because housing associations with the support of the government were able to borrow really significant amounts of money and start building new build. And that's what Notting Hill, Gen- Notting Hill and Genesis started doing in the 1980s. This moment is a, is a, is a market-making moment in British history and actually of international significance, I think, because essentially a conservative government, um, possibly with the idea of possibly with the idea of doing a good thing, but at the same time breaking up... Privatising. Uh, Privatising and, and breaking up municipal housing amounts, because we'll come to how yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah. But, to, but, but at the same time, quite interesting, because from a, from a kind of non-municipal um, socialist kind of perspective, from a kind of uh, communitarian uh, kind of uh, perspective, you, you could say that this was a form of collective act action, but just at a, a lower and more voluntary level. And so, you know, it's not it's not all one side politically. I think the what happened in eighty eight it it led to, and also I think had some very good consequences for tenants and and the number of houses we we built. But let, I'm running ahead of myself. So eighty eight, Maggie Thatcher for those people, you know, who, who had actually done some interesting things, and this is one of them, um, possibly influenced by. Michael Heseltine or somebody, but at the end of the day, created, uh, created the mechanism, I think, by which the housing associations greatly expanded and became big players. So when did, when did you get involved in all this stuff, by the way? I think I was, I was involved just before 1988 because I remember when I started getting a 100% grant, yep. um, which it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Uh, is that socialist or, or communist, you know, to give a 100% grant to yeah. housing associations to do what they like? At that time, we were spending more than 100%. We were getting extra money for not doing it well. Right. And in a way, to me, the introduction of the uh, regime where we had to borrow money commercially forced us to up our game, right. forced in- us to become commercial, forced us to become entrepreneurial, forced us to... Uh, invest rather than just spend and I think that change of mindset was something I was very up for I had uh, come with a private sector background Uh, I was really up for making that happen in a way that benefited the community yes we were set up as not-for-profits we were set up with a community base but we were completely free of local government control and political control which is always been resented by politicians and I do get that the democratic accountability is different but it also brought this much more private sector energy in, you know, so we re- attracted different kind of people who were turned on by growth and building and development and design and improvement and change. We weren't just sort of spending the king's shilling on doing what we'd all, all, always done. So <clears throat> where were you? What were you qualified at, by the way? When did you join? What, what level did you join the organization at? So I, I started in the development team. Just by absolutely random, I used to work in the family planning sector. The, someone I worked with said my husband's looking for someone in a housing association. I didn't even know what a housing association was. But I went into it with an open mind. I suddenly realized it was something fascinating, utterly fascinating. It, met, it ticked all the boxes for me about making change, about improving people's lives, about changing the environment, building nice buildings, the design side, the how people live, uh, families, children, women, you know, it ticked a lot of boxes for me. So it uh, it became my life's work. But I didn't start with the qualification. I ended up with uh, quite a few, uh, one in housing association development. I became a member of RICS um, and so on. And uh, 
yeah, so I, I, I learned what I needed to know. But at that time, there were very low barriers to entry in terms of qualifications. I really do believe in qualifications and I have some now, but I didn't start with any. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, so when the period of, of big growth comes for Notting Hill, but also, did you get any benefits from stock transfer? Did you get any stock transfer at all? Yes. So we, we have, just to explain we have stock, stock transfers in there. Not to, big ones, but yes. Just to explain the process. So this is where the Conservative government actually uh, would ask tenants in public housing um, and there was all sorts of re- steps by which we came to this ballot, but they effectively were given a, a ballot as to which social housing provider they might want to go to. And even if they didn't, you know, didn't want to go to a social housing provider, but let's say that there was a, a, a steps towards that. And so often the, the um, and these would be extraordinary uh, uh, sort of steps, but uh, the scale of it is really important because over about a 20-year period, something like half the public housing stock transferred to the community housing sector. I think that's right. I think we I think it was I don't think it's as much. I don't think it's as much oh, as no, that, I, but I, I might be wrong. I think well oh sorry, sorry, I know what it is. The housing the public housing stock reduced by half because some of that was um, because of right to buy right to buy. And then the re- sorry and the rest of it you're you're obviously correct. I would obviously defer to you on the facts of this matter anyway, but you are right. Uh, what I was gonna say was before we get into you know, the journey that you've begun in the 90s and the noughties and all this kind of stuff. But essentially, what we have on our hands here is a really uh, interesting, uh, you know, charitable organization that is entrepreneurial from the start, but actually has an exponential growth pattern and uh, manages, I think, brilliantly. And I will talk about what you've been doing, you've been up to. But that transition from eight homes to 67,000 homes like, is a case study in itself. On this stock, tr- stock transfer, so this is an interesting one because there are discussions and there have been some stock transfers in, in other countries like in Australia. We've had a modest stock, stock tr- transfer and this is literally where public housing gets transferred. We do it differently in Australia and I don't think it's as um, compelling because essentially it's just the transfer of uh, the management income rather than the, the title could you say a little bit about what what having the title to sort of these public housing units meant for the sector? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also I have the experience of working um, in the London Borough of Bexley, where we did a stock transfer of the whole stock to two housing associations. So I've been on the pushing outside as well as on the receiving side. Um, and initially in Bexley, it was done as the management first to see how it worked. And then once the management had been proved, then the stock was transferred. I mean, I think absolutely that the ownership of the of the home is essential. Otherwise, the the investment in the stock is still in the hands of the local authority, which is always under pressure financially because it's just funded by government, whereas the housing association can often do very significant things. And I know in Bexley, some of our worst stock in the north of the borough on the um, side of the Thames, which was horrible um, high rise, has all been pulled down and a a lovely new community has been built there with a mixture of housing, not just the social housing, but also commercial, you know, private housing. And now it's desirable for the social tenants to live there instead of being the place nobody wanted to live when I was in charge of allocations in Bexley. So that sort of thing can happen because they can bring the private money in, they can bring the private tenure in. Local authorities aren't building homes for market rent or for private sale. I mean, a few of them are nibbling at that now, but in general, they had no interest in that at all. In fact, not even the virus to do private uh, commercial activity. And where they have done it, unfortunately, it's been a complete disaster. And there's lots of sad examples of them buying shopping centres or doing in Croydon uh, their own building company, which ended up bankrupting the council. I rather worry that I was advising the council at that time, but we shall move on from that. <laughs> the, uh, what I was going to say was the um, I grew up in public housing. I want to pause on this for a moment because I think, as you know, I ended up as the kind of government advisor on housing in the Blair Browning kind of era. And I was often in meetings with people talking about the future of public housing when I'd be the only person in the room, in a room of 20 in government that had actually grown up in it. You know, it was kind of very interesting experience. So I was quite um, positive about my experience growing up in public housing, but it was anything but a kind of sink estate. And it was very much a kind of, um, it was a general needs housing thing where people of all social backgrounds were in not-for-profit housing owned by the council. 
And but even then, and I was very positive, you know, and I come from a, you know, I come from a kind of labor background, trade union, in fact, as you know, right? So I, I was very sentimentally drawn to the idea of, of public housing. And I still think that it's important to, for different reasons that we need um, other people in the market doing homes rather than um, a Barrett or a Wimpy or just uh, homes for sale. I think there is important that we have all sorts of models. But you're absolutely right. There was the, I don't think we saw the public housing landlord from one decade to another. I mean, I, they collected the rent, but they didn't seem to have enough money to do anything for us. And, and by the way, if anybody in the council uh, in Wales wants to look inside my father's house, which is still there now, it bears very little relationship to the house we inherited uh, uh, as public housing tenants, and we changed it without permission. Um, and it has a bathroom in there. It didn't have in the 1940s or 50s when we went in there first. Anyway, so I'm very, so I'm very objective about these matters because I, I think community housing providers have shown the merit of getting new money in, professional-focused uh, landlord uh, activity, and where they've got the resources, actually. Some of them have done really good community building and kind of social capital building projects. So, you know, I think I, I kind of get it, and I'm a strong advocate of, of social housing expansion, actually, in, in Australia. I want to come to that. <clears throat> so you're in the 90s, you're in the noughties. What are the big trends that are affecting the growth of uh, Notting Hill. How, you, you're building, you're getting more and more and more. Is that because you're being entrepreneurial? You're still looking out for cheap units to buy and upgrade. You're, you're being, you know, I, what, what are the trends that really shape your your growth? Yes, I think in the nineties <clears throat> there was a, a real uh, keenness to build more homes and to continue with uh, regeneration. Um, so I think if you put it into three categories, there's regeneration of old council estates, and the, that was part of the stock transfer story. Yeah, that's true. Nottingham Genesis has been doing a big, uh, a big regeneration scheme in Southwark um, on an estate that Tony Blair went on. Um, well, that one. In the early yes, that one, um, <clears throat> and a, another one in North London, and a third one. So it has has done the big regeneration projects. They're very difficult, very long term, very expensive, very political. But nevertheless, that has been a key element of that growth. Uh, secondly, would be simply new build, mainly in conjunction with councils, looking at old councils, say, um, parking lots or old um, council buildings that needed to be pulled down or whatever, usually working with the public sector for the sites, but also buying them on the open market. And then a certain amount of refurbishment. On the whole, that's gone out of fashion, which is a great shame, in my opinion, because I'm very interested in the green agenda. Yes, yes. Refurbishment <clears throat> is really, really important rather than always knocking down and rebuilding. I think that's but a trend. That's going, the trend is coming back. I though. think it's coming back. It should <clears throat> come back. Yeah. The main reason why <clears throat> we stopped doing it is because it was VAT was charged. So it would it'd be 20% more expensive to refurbish a home. But for those who don't know, yeah. <clears throat> for those who don't know what VAT is, that's in Australian equivalent to GST. That's the tax on services. So that essentially you are not treating uh, new homes and refurbishing old homes on the same level playing field. So, and, and that's a really important tax point. So you were, how many people, have, did you know, when you had 67,000 at the end, how many people were you employing? I think about 2,000, 2,000 people. And again, um, from two or three people to 2,000 people, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, starting, it was all volunteers to start yeah. with completely. Yeah. You know, there were about 25 and we've got some of the early photographs of all these lovely students with long hair and beatniks and people like that. A few uh, black people, a few religious people, a few cricket, you know, someone who became the Bishop of Liverpool, all sorts of a few housewives wearing hats. You know, there's a there's a real mix of community activists involved in those early days. So, um, <coughs> yes, professionalised. Yeah. So you um, we enter then the incredible period growing up to the crash in 2007, where there was all sorts of kind of growth in, and people were getting, a government particularly, and I started working for the government just before the crash around, we've got to get more housing up, you know, we're very slow building, there's not enough activity going on the housing market, I've got to get more numbers up. So you must have been in a growth period going into the kind of crash. And uh, But how, the crash, let's just talk about that, because people, <clears throat> part of what happens in, in the London, let's talk about the London social housing scene. And this is an important thing around what in Australia and other places we might call inclusionary zoning, right? This is this is where you have a mandatory 
proportion of units in a development that should be allocated to social uh, and community housing, right? So London, you know, under, under the, the greater London mayor, uh, Livingston, but followed on even by the conservative uh, Boris, to be honest, but essentially, not, not quite the same, but essentially uh, London mandated that there should be, uh, in, whenever there's more than 10 houses built or whatever the, the, the numbers, I think it was 10, that there should be a significant proportion. And, and people in, in Australia are just amazed by the proportion. But let us say 35, 40, sometimes 50% would be social, it would be affordable, it would be a mix of things, but they would not be yes. traditional market for sale homes, right? So so you were in that era, and the only trouble with the crash was that if we required, and you, you did some of your own development, but if you if you required to buy units off, you know, sort of private housing providers, they all went bust, in, or, they, or they stopped in 2007, 8, 9, and precisely at that moment, and this is I, I want to do a, a modest moment of self-celebration. I don't do very much, but the uh, this was when we created... I, I'm not convinced I was right to do this, by, by the way. I helped create the Homes and Communities Agencies, but but from 2009, it became almost the, the, the biggest developer in London, you know, the biggest housing provider as the crash crippled a lot of the private housing developers, and they ended up buying stock, uh, like distressed assets, off the private sector. And so what was your experience in that that rather terrible moment? Well, that, yeah, it's really interesting because um, it actually forced us to change the way we worked as well, because up until then, many housing associations, Notting Hill included, would buy up what the private sector were, were um, building. Yeah, so we would get that at a reduced cost and we would then either resell it as shared ownership or we would let it to social housing. So we would be working with a big developer like Barrett's or Barclay and they'd say, do you want to be our social housing provider? This is the price we want and, and we would take it. But during that time of the 90s, we became much more focused on what are we doing? We should do our own building, take the, the, the section 106, which is the requirement for social housing that you just mentioned, Tim, take that for ourselves and sell the rest uh, in order to make profit. So we changed, that's when our model changed really. Um, and we were able to buy sites during that time at really good prices yeah, yeah, yeah. because everybody <clears throat> else was stepping away. We had a good war chest because we built up quite a lot of profit over the years. We were able to invest 200 million pounds in buying up land, which we did. And we then had 8,000 sites that we were ready to go. And that powered our development program for about 10 years wow. and enabled us to keep the price down to the eventual mm. buyer. So That's unfortunately sort of run out of steam now, but that was what kept us going for quite a long time. So out of evil cometh good, right? So the, there was a, <clears throat> a crash on and you were be able to pick up stuff for your own social purpose, right? Which is, Correct. And, and you had the, the war chest. I mean, by the way, just to put in context, 200 million pounds back then, would be probably the equivalent of 400 million minimum now, I think, probably, maybe 350, but certainly a very big number. And that would be equivalent to about, oh, seven or 800 million dollars in Australian dollars, right? So, so essentially, that is a massive, and you were at the time, not the biggest, but you were certainly one of the bigger ones, even in the... We're not necessarily, I don't think we've ever been the biggest. I no. think we're probably five or six or seven. Um, I'm not exactly sure now because people merge and, and things change. But straight after the merger, we were number five. We could be right. six or seven now. I'm not sure. But um, what was interesting, we were probably one of the most aggressive developers. Right, okay. Not you know, others might be big, but not necessarily growing at the same pace. We were really into growth and development. That was a real focus for us. It was a focus of the mayor. All of the mayors, including the current one, <clears throat> have been focused on trying to get growth. But uh, but Ken and Boris were up for growth and we were up for doing it. One of the things that people, again, who might not know the sector need to understand. And I remember hearing this back in about 2010 and thinking, gosh, how interesting is that? That the because of the, um, the the what's the word? Because of the settled history of a good regulation, more or less, of social housing providers, more or less, they never would allow the government and the regulator would never allow anybody to go under. They would force a merger, so the banks never lost their money, right? So essentially, they became quite a safe thing to invest in. Number one, number two, banks 
this is another important lesson for other places. Banks uh, had a kind of simple, but the banks' um, lending kind of committees had a very simple proposition before them. They would say, "Oh, that's regulated social housing. We're going to invest invest in." So they found it quite easy. They knew what the product was. And the third thing was that the fact that I thought was really interesting. And and Lendlease told me this. I used to work for Lendlease, who's obviously very well known in London, in England, and in Australia. But Lendlease couldn't borrow as cheaply as some of the big social housing providers, because. You know, and uh, because of this asset base and this regulated safety, and uh, the banks felt very comfortable with the product. And uh, absolutely, yeah, which absolutely. is an amazing we fact. All, we were borrowing all in at under two percent. We we borrowed about two and a half billion pounds from basically pension funds via bond issuance, and that has really been important that we're. Mm. I mean, we, our advantage over the private sector, apart from the obvious one that we are more um, acceptable to local authorities and the eventual customer, is that we are, as charities, not paying the same levels of tax, but also that we can borrow very much more cheaply. Um, and also that our, our staff are motivated. They don't have to be paid, you know, huge salaries and lots of bonuses and tips and all the L tips and all of that, you know, they... They work for social purpose so that you're not paying. We have the most fantastic people. I mean, I'm just thinking of John Hughes, our development director, you know, some fantastic people on a sort of regular, regular wage. And um, it, they they are as good as or if not better than the best of the private sector and motivated by social drive. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City series. So as we enter the last decade you've got on the one hand you've got the conservatives coming in 2010 and from then on controversially actually you have austerity hits and they cut public spending dramatically and by the way i i, I waste no opportunity to criticize this because the um the, there's just been some interesting data showing that london's economy stalled after the crash uh, and therefore the, the national economy has been damaged and um tim harford the barefoot economist reckons that British people are probably 35% ahead less wealthy than, than they would have been if we'd kept on the growth trajectory of before the crash. And so austerity did damage things, but it also had an effect because they cut public spending and all this kind of stuff. So I'm assuming the grant, which had been going down, carried on going down as a share of, of your work. Did it? I think it did. But but you, you, yeah. grew, you grew used to um, not having it, sort of. Well, exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. true. I mean, I think uh, the last time I did the calculation, about 10% of our income was government grants, wow. and the rest was either recycled profits or borrowing. So it went from 100, 105% down to 10% uh, on a par with what we see in the Netherlands and so on. Right. Um, but it has gone up a bit because... Uh, it became so low that it was in danger of not producing anything. Right. And at the moment, there's a big, I mean, the current issue really is the government have cut uh, resources a lot um, for social housing. And then they've also told people to go and focus on the existing stock right. for good reason. I don't know if you even want to get into that, but the the, the condition of the existing mm. stock has been in decline and insufficient investment made into it. So they've asked for a rejig, which is happening, but it means that the contribution to new build has really fallen off the cliff. That's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't picked that up because that's a bit like uh, there was a moment back in the early Blair days under the much uh, maligned, but in my view, uh, missed John Prescott, who uh, essentially um, we did this thing. <laughs> I, 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 I'm laughing because it was a great thing, but I can tell you there was a flaw in it. So we did uh, the Decent Homes program, as you well as you well know, right? And there was a, there was a massive spend on upgrading existing uh, public and social housing uh, to to become you know livable and you know better quality kitchens and bathrooms and Prius and all that kind of stuff. We probably missed some tricks. If we'd be doing it now, we'd be talking a lot more about green energy and about you know the sort of efficiency of energy efficiency and all sorts of things. But the two two things that I I think were I used to laugh at one of them, which is that the we. We forgot the urban regeneration part of it in the sense what we well rather we ended up putting money into homes in areas in areas that were never going to succeed. So we put a lot of money into upgrading homes in places in which people could not succeed. And that was that was a, a, a waste of money and effort. But the second thing was I worked out afterwards 
when I was working for the government on, on the um, housing revenue account, which is a technical thing, but essentially um, <clears throat> if we'd allowed local authorities um, to... Uh, uh, to uh, basically, it, it, we could have found a way to do decent homes by allowing them to borrow, to borrow more at local level rather than us spending £38 billion pounds on the programme. However, you're now saying that we probably need to do decent homes again, do we? I'm afraid so, but I mean, the, the, the social, the housing associations didn't get any decent homes money. That wasn't oh, available yes. to us at all. I'd forgotten about that. So yeah. we, we just kept going with patch repairs. Oh, I see. The, yeah. the repairs bills of housing associations are very high and are taking up at least a third of the rental income. A third will be going to pay the banks, a third will be for the management, and a third will be for for day-to-day -day repairs, most of which are due to the crumbling nature of the properties. Um, so it's actually highly inefficient and really a major investment of the decent home standard type of money should be being invested in housing associations. And that's kind of being realised now. So does that mean that at the very moment we still think we need to produce more housing, social housing providers are going to have to spend a bit more on their own stock rather than new build? Is That's what you were saying, right? So... Okay. Exactly. And this, I, I, you know, Notting Hill Genesis will, will um, under new leadership, um, it has a strategy of reinvesting very significant amounts in the existing stock. Um, and there's three reasons for that. One is the green agenda, as you mentioned, a lot of the housing is um, under the standard of what, what is going to be required um, and boiler replacements and so on are needed in order to increase the uh, the, the thermal efficiency of properties as well as insulation and so on. Uh, secondly, there's the fire safety issue, which I already mentioned, yeah, Grenfell, right, and right. that's been absolutely pivotal in turning around how people feel about the safety of homes, but also the quality of homes. And then the third thing really is this sort of waste of money on day-to-day -day repairs and tenant dissatisfaction with the quality of their home. So you put those three together, it becomes an overwhelming case to take some of the money away from development and put it into the investment of the homes. And that's what, what uh, the shift that I did at Notting Hill in my last two years. And I think others are doing the same thing from, from what I can see. So now I'm going to ask you about, I always ask people at this part of the conversation about their greatest hits, their greatest hits working for the organisation that they are in. And I want you to tell me what they are, number one. Number two, though, and I'll come back to it. I want to talk a bit about um, what you think has been maybe this is one of your greatest hits actually. What, what do you think has been the benefit for tenants of the kinds of strategies and, and resources that you brought to bear? So, I, greatest hits and tenants have they benefited? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, when you talk about a big new build program, you're benefiting people who are not tenants. You're you're yeah. benefiting people who are homeless or in temporary housing or who are waiting to move because they're overcrowded. So you are making pe some people very happy. But if most of your resources are going into that, your existing tenant base is getting a little bit fed up. And um, you try and do certain things like um, get people to move within the stock to get a better home for their needs and so on. But it hasn't been really the focus, if, if I'm absolutely honest. I mean, I'm, I came from a housing management background. I've always been very interested in housing management and the quality of life of tenants and how you can do that within existing resources. But... I would say, on being self-critical and critical of our sector, the, the emphasis on growth has meant that most of the money and the brains and the ideas and the strategies have gone into the growth side, whereas the existing stock has been neglected. But I mean, you, you put behind this all government strategies, you know, we're trying to work in the range of government strategies. And I would certainly say today, housing in the UK is the result, I mean, in a way, the government gets the housing that it deserves. You know, the government makes the strategies and and it, it's not working that well because the strategies are pretty abysmal. Well, really. I, well I, I think it's a general truth about the, the people underestimate the, you know, I've just written a piece which says, uh, in order to change the housing markets anywhere, all roads lead back to government. And I mean it in both in the regulatory sense and in the, planning sense but also that they 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 can create markets and they can they can sometimes they can sometimes but they beyond that they can also sometimes be developers at least you know we can disagree about this but the extent to which they need to stay in the business of managing them is, is a separate thing but government land and the way in which they can 
you know, take risks that the private sector can't and they can do like um, development outside business cycles and all this kind of stuff, right? We need to really think through. And I, I but I want to come back to you. Greatest hits, come on. What's your greatest hits? Uh, well, I think um, for me, there's quite a lot of things. One, I mean, things that we invented that I'm proud of. I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to do homes for outright sale. Not many housing associations were doing that. It was a risk. We didn't have the experience in-house. We learned how to do homes for private sale. We were selling homes at a million pounds or more, which is is shocking, really, for a bunch of charity people wearing sandals. You know, uh, we were able to do that. Secondly, the division of market rent that we set up, Folio London, which became a massive uh, billion-pound-plus business, uh, providing homes that people are giving, you know, four or five stars on Trustpilot that they love the product and they love the way it's managed. We set up something called Simplicity or Homes for Heroes, where we were simply buying homes on the open market, doing them up and letting them at a, a discounted rent, 20% off, uh, not with any government grant at all, simply as a charitable, charitable endeavor, endeavor, really helping key workers, fire workers, nurses, and so on. <clears throat> Those are three things that I just off the top of my head, I'm I'm thinking that we developed and designed a fantastic end to end uh, IT system called Workwise that enabled tenants to completely self serve links in with all the repairs providers. I mean, that was something that we did uh, under my leadership and I'm very proud of. So those are just four things that I can think of. But the other thing is about organizational growth and development and how to keep 2000 people on board and the sort of culture of the organization. I was very big on diversity. Uh, when I left, we had three women, three black people and one white man on my executive team. Not there's anything wrong with white men at all. No. You know, some of my- Well, thank you. I'm even married to an old white man. Absolutely, you know, they're, no. They're decent people like you, Tim, but the need to bring forward women, ethnic minority people, uh, gay people, people with disabilities into leadership roles. Our board was 50-50, women, men, black, white, and that's something I was really proud of as well. So the these sort of uh, the the new the new strategy around uh, greening the the housing yeah. is very sophisticated, uh, based on again uh, lots of data. We were able to use um, data to sort of understand the current stock to decide what needed to be done, what was the most cost effective thing to do, and the overall investment plan that we put into our business plan was three quarters of a billion pounds into improving the stock over ten years. And that's uh, that. That's also something I'm proud of. But that's quick whiz through. And, no, no. But I think it's uh, great. I think I think I I love the the headlines there, and I also like the the fact that you ended with the organisational stuff because I think almost the most transferable thing in this discussion, right, is that to look at the journey that you've been on, right. That's the you know it's just and the fact that you the something from the charitable sector has become so commercially successful and viable while still delivering social purpose is a really wonderful thing i think and i think it's and i think it's a missing it's kind of the missing middle you know in in, in it, that we've got very in australia particularly we've got tremendous like almost all housing is just done by one business model which is the house builders for sale and that's very vulnerable when there's a you know when the market turns and all this kind of stuff and it's not it doesn't get you a socially necessary number of homes it just can't it's not their fault it's not their fault so we have to do we have to find other providers and people with different business models and taking different risks. And I think, for me, you're a, a very great example of how that something that starts as a not-for-profit thing, you know, could still be, you know, a commercially leading edge and, and extremely innovative and, also, and get to a scale which allows you to be a, a big player whilst not being a Barrett's or a Wimpy or, or whatever. And I think, I think that's an extraordinary journey. I have a specific to ask you, and then you can come back and say whatever you like. And I thought we might... I think we should have a bit of a chat about the the Grenfell thing, actually, just your observations about it, because you did talk about the, the 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 fire risk side of it, and there's a very interesting discussion about this. But can we go back one step? Uh, low cost home ownership or shared equity? I'm really interested in this. You were one of the people that innovated in this area, so tell me where that came from and what you did, and where is it now? Yeah, the the early. Um in the early 80s, it was became, uh, I mean, people were coming to Notting Hill who had decent incomes and saying, look, we, we're going to have to leave the area or our children can't afford to rent. What have you got for us? And 
we looked at how this could possibly be achieved. And the idea was that we would build a flat, uh, the market value, let's say it was £100,000, um, that we could sell a share of 25, 35, 50% of that to a, a, young, a young person or a young couple, and they would take a mortgage on that half a house. So they would have to get a mortgage for £50,000, but their, their, um, their deposit would be considerably less, would be half of what, what it was. And the remaining 50% we would retain and they would pay a, a limited rent on that, about 2% of the equity, which at the time was considerably less than the borrowing rate. So they would pay a rent on the bit that they didn't own, and they would pay a mortgage on the half that they did. And they would have the opportunity to buy out the rest at any point at the price it was that day. So um, it enabled people to have the enjoyment of the whole home, effectively paying um, half a mortgage and, and a low rent. Um, and it was incredibly popular. They really sold like hotcakes originally because they were available to people at the really the lowest part of the market. <clears throat> when I worked in the London Borough of Bexley, we were initially making sure that 50% of the shared ownership that we had from our housing associations was going to social tenants. So social tenants were moving from social tenancies into shared ownership, making their social home available for a new family in need. And that was fantastic at that stage. I mean, I was really, really proud of it and it worked really well. Today in Notting Hill, if there's one or 2% being sold to social tenants, I'd be surprised. It's just become so expensive as house prices in London have, have risen exponentially. It has got to be the stage now where people have to earn a joint income of about 60 or 70,000 pounds. So, I mean, 35 grand, it's a sort of, it's not the bottom of the, of the pile. It is the, probably the mid-market price. So you're getting young professionals buying this rather than social tenants and people at the lower, in the lower quartile. But this is partly because it's London and it's a very expensive part of London. And so, but tell me about the idea of shared equity. Do you think it can, it's a good idea and, and, can, and should grow as an idea? Because I'm, I'm an enthusiast for it because... I can't see any other way in which um, younger people and people on lower incomes can get into ownership. And we know, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's a very imp important point to make about this. The, the whatever, you know, one hears about rental and all this, and I'm all for all forms of tenure and all that kind of stuff. The problem we've seen is the, is the gap around access to wealth from property. And I think that there are all sorts of collateral benefits from getting a foot on the housing ownership ladder and we should try and find imaginative ways and if it requires government to be a bit more imaginative and use its public land or whatever it is I, I'm all for it so do you, do you think we could grow this proposition? I totally agree with you I mean we weren't getting a lot of grant into it I think it was about 20,000 per unit as government grant so it was a little bit of help but nothing like the amount going into into um, social housing yeah. I mean the case for it is you're building mixed and balanced communities. That's always been a big thing for Notting Hill Genesis, not to have ghettoization or, or um, you know, private estates with gates on gated estates. There should be a mixed community to make a thriving city. Uh, secondly, we would say that the foot on the ladder is important for people to put down roots in an area and feel it's their own. But I mean, people feel that with secure social housing as well. That's for sure. But also just that, as you get older, you're going to be paying off your mortgage and therefore you have some degree of financial freedom in older age. All the older people in social housing, all of their rents are having to be paid for by the state because they have no, no access to equity. Also, in the event of a sort of emergency, for example, uh, medical treatment, not that we have to pay for it in the UK, but if you had a, something you really needed to do, You've got equity in your home, you can release equity and you can have some money. If you have no money for going into care, that's the better example. Going into care is paid for in the UK. So the equity release often happens to pay for care. If you don't have that, the government is picking up the cost of care for people who have no assets. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons, but mainly it's that sense that people uh, love their home and they invest in the area and they want it to be, want it to be fantastic. So the, the, uh, the, um, uh, it is very popular, it remains very popular, and it does mean that people can usually get a, 
a shared ownership property when they're single or as a couple, perhaps have one child and then later they can move into pure market housing because they've got enough equity saved up in their shared ownership property. They often will sell out and then use that to go perhaps to the outer parts of London or away from London to, to get their sort of uh, forever house. But it's certainly a very good stepping stone for people. Are you, are you, I guess, are you involved in build-to-rent stuff or uh, in collaboration with anybody doing build-to-rent? Yeah, yeah, no, Nottingham Genesis. What I referred to as Folio London is a build-to-rent business within the organisation. And just to, just to touch on the idea about government uh, grant, the government in the UK brought in something called help to buy. Um, as the private sector often calls it help to sell because the, they can sell their properties up to £600,000 with a, a grant from the government. In other words, the people are buying the property at a lower price because some of the equity is held by central government. And, um, this has been very advantageous to the house, house builders and they have made a lot of money from help to buy. And I, I remember seeing the figures, the government were putting nine billion into help to buy and two billion into housing associations as a whole. So they really, this government has really supported the private sector to produce help to buy, which is, is starting to come home to roost now because that uh, amount that the government guaranteed is, is going to have to be paid for by people and they're going to get uh, a shock. No, but it's interesting. Your point, I think, is also that the government needs to be careful as to what it does invest in and, and how, how it, because it can be counterproductive. I mean, I remember uh, when I tried to explain this to a government guy once, uh, he said, well, why shouldn't we just give a lot of money to young people to like £50,000 to be the deposit on their first home? And I said, well, I can tell you what that actually does is raise the price of a home. And I, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, because what can I do with 50,000? He said, well, it'll only add 50,000 to the price of a home. I said, no, 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 no. I can leverage the 50,000 by borrowing through my, on my mortgage an extra five times that or six times that because I, I, it's a capital sum. It's my, you've given it to me. I can leverage it. It's going to cost more. The house is going to cost 100,000 more. So people, government, governments don't always understand what they're doing with this stuff. Let's just conclude this really insightful conversation and also uh, it's great talking to a real expert who's changed something big and i uh, i really I'm, i think everybody listening will be very impressed with the story but i want people also to understand that this is a uh, an innovation in a business model this is an innovation in who gets involved in doing business you know this this is this, this is not just what it seems like 60,000 homes and it's barrett's doing it no it's not it's 67,000, and it's somebody that started as a charitable enterprise that is doing it. And I find that really inspiring and interesting. And I think I want to transfer it to places like Australia. Uh, I was going to ask you about I was going to ask you about the Grenfell thing from an interesting perspective, just to put it in context for people. And, and I'm no expert on it, but I do, you know, I obviously reflected on it a lot, partly because I'd been a government housing advisor and, and partly because I'd grown up in public housing. But, I mean, you know, a tower burns down to the very, very quickly um, and lots of people get killed and it's a terrible tragedy. And then, you know, there are certain, there are, there's an inquiry and there's lots of discussions. And at the end of the day, it hasn't been fully uh, sort of determined exactly what happened. We've seen, in you know, announcements from the inquiry about what directions of travel and all this kind of stuff. And, it, you know, there's a mixture of things inevitably, including the design of the building, cladding. Um, there was a lot of attacks came from some people who just don't like, um, you know, uh, social housing providers providing homes or whatever it was because there was, you know, there was controversy. Some of the, I just to put it in context for those people who don't know, but there are bits of the the far left that have really, you know, and they they are they were the far left. Often people who never lived in public housing themselves criticizing, you know, what they saw as privatization of homes through community housing providers and all this kind of stuff. You know, there were flaws, there were problems, there may be criminal sort of negligence and all sorts of things. But the bigger picture is, for me, about, um, you know, are there any lessons learnt to be learnt from a, a, a tragedy like Grenfell from, from your perspective? Oh, like you, soul searching. I mean, we unfortunately lost eight people in that fire. Wow! Because we had, uh, we had. I didn't mention it, but we had a temporary housing function, 
and we had bought some of the X-Right to buy properties and we were housing homeless people in, in the Grenfell fire. So it was a personal tragedy, something that, uh, uh, you know, still will, will, live, will live with me till the end of my days, that in some way we may have borne some responsibility. I mean, the, the refurbishment of the block was done by the council, not, not by us in any way. We were leaseholders like a number of other people in the block. But, uh, of course, you do worry terribly as a landlord how safe are our buildings. I mean, that's yeah. the main bit of learning, how safe are our buildings in the event of a fire or any kind of catastrophe. Are our people going to burn to death? You know, are our people going to survive? And that becomes a, a very, very important consideration. But behind it is another one. It's about how do we treat tenants? How, do we listen to them? Do we... Are we aware of what they're telling us? Do we accept their eyes and ears advice to us or do we dismiss it? And I think there's been a lot of that. I mean, it, in a way, it makes me cross because the government did some surveys, um, the, the current government did some surveys of tenants before the Grenfell fire. And they found that the uh, uh, attitudes to tenants displayed by public services was very negative and yeah, they felt right. stigmatized stigmatized and i think that's right i think the government created an atmosphere of the stigmatization of social tenants through a lot of a lot of different actions and policies yeah, and yeah. statements and so on and i think that all contributed to the idea that social housing is lesser when you lived in it tim it was equal it was just a different type of housing today or until recently it was regarded as lesser it's where the the people who can't look after themselves have to live. The poor, the people who can't speak English, the immigrants, the, the mentally ill, the alcoholics, they're all kind of in the social housing. And there was very much a sort of stigmatization of social tenants, which tenants themselves complained about. And the government then turns around and says to providers, well, why aren't you treating people well? You know, why are you ignoring their demands? Um, and it's tied in with having no resources really to upgrade the stock. <clears throat> As I mentioned, there was no access to decent homes money or anything like that. And they go, well, look, your housing is in really poor condition. These people are putting up with cockroaches. Look at these. The, there are leaks coming through their ceiling. The ceiling is falling in. It's disgusting. The sewage, all of which is true. There are there are places like that in social housing and the television and so on took up these stories. And all the blame is being put on the social housing providers. Now, I'm not saying they are without fault at all. I'm not saying there are people who don't care in the sector, and I'm not saying that. But a lot of it is due to being insufficiently funded um, in order to do this work and being encouraged to put all the money into development. So Notting Hill and others have said, right, well, we are going to look after our own tenants first now. That's what we're going to do, and we're going to start investing in it. And I do think, and you know, you don't want people to have died in vain, but I do think that the, the fact of Grenfell has forced the whole sector to start focusing on the existing tenant group, which is a very good thing. It's very important and it was, it was necessary. And all of us have been guilty of focusing on the homeless and the people who need housing rather than the people who are in the social housing. And I think that turnaround has been a good thing and, and long may it continue. It might be the Bible who says, I, I can never remember my Bible, but I think it says something like, out of evil cometh good, or it might just be a wise saying. But there is something in that. And I think it's a brilliant place to end where a conversation I could go on for ages around. Um, partly because I'm obsessive about certain parts of this, of this story. Um, not just the bit that I, I occupied myself of growing up in public housing, but because I became this advisor thing, I became really obsessed with the business models behind it and what we, you know, and and I love the story you tell, two stories you tell, which is of the journey that you've been on uniquely, and I think brilliantly told, great story, well told. Thank you very much, and we can learn so much from people. I bet I'm going to get lots of comments from people saying, "Gosh, we didn't know they were that big, and we didn't know people did that kind of stuff." And how do we do that stuff ourselves, right? Because I want people to share lessons from this kind of stuff. And if people want to contact you, Kate, and talk about the journey, I'm, I'm sure we can connect them to you, right? But the second part of the story that you tell, which is that you end where you began with the social purpose perspective, right? However much, and you were uh, very well known for being extremely entrepreneurial and, and very successful in what you did, but I think you end in the right place, which is that um, we mustn't, you know, e even inadvertently 
sacrifice the interests of people who are existing tenants for, for the exciting entrepreneurial, let's build new stuff stuff. And that they're always remembering the cross fertilization is meant to be there, that, that there is an original purpose. Uh, and I think that you've established that, that proposition really well. Look, thank you so much for your time. Uh, hasta la vista. Uh, as we, as we, as we very, as very bad Mexican Spanish people say, you know, I think that's that's great. You, I hope you're learning Catalan, obviously in in Barcelona. Oh, so, I'm afraid not. But can I just say, it's not my story; it's our story. It's the story of thousands of people, but it's also your story too. Yeah. Because intelligent, motivated people in government are absolutely crucial. If you don't have them, you're kind of on your own, and you're battling all the time. So I think. Uh, you can take a lot of credit as well, Tim. And it's been great talking to you today. I feel like a, you know, a fellow, a fellow social housing advocate. It's it's uh, it's great. And I hope that people in Australia who are motivated to to do more for communities uh, take some inspiration from these stories and and start to you know really make a difference. I know there are great people there, and and they they want to do well. So to people in government in Australia and to in the community housing movement. You know, more power to you. I hope you. I hope you do well. Well, they'll all be listening to that, and I think that's uh, great advice and great place to end. Kate Davis, thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City, with your host Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series, or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.